Hello and welcome to another Kangaroo English Daily Digest podcast. My name is Christian and today is Monday, definitely the best day of the week. <laughs> In today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about something a little bit abstract, maybe a little bit kind of mysterious, but it tells us something really important about learning languages, especially if you're learning a language from zero. And it also tells us about what it means to be human. So I actually want to start with today's word of the day. And today's word of the day is pundit, P-U-N-D-I-T. And pundit comes to us from India. And in India, the word pundit means a learned scholar, somebody with deep knowledge about a subject. But when we borrowed this word into English, unfortunately, the meaning changed a little bit. And, and in English, a pundit is kind of a derogatory word. It has some negative connotations. So a pundit is somebody that you will usually find on a television program or a radio program, maybe about sports or politics. And a pundit will give their expert opinion. But that's all it is, just opinion. And if you are trying to learn a language, then you know that the world of language learning is full of pundits, people and companies with opinions about learning languages, about how to learn a language, and the best way to learn a language. But us, us right now listening to this podcast, people who want to know the truth, we're interested in facts. We're interested in science. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to start by staying on the Indian subcontinent, the home of the word pundit. But I want to stay there and I want to talk about Indian music, specifically a type of music called a raga. Now, ragas have two different phases. They have alap and gut. And they are different in rhythm, these two different parts of the, of the raga, but they are the same in their tone. So different rhythms, same tones. And it raises an interesting question. And the question is, if you are born on the Indian subcontinent and you grow up listening to, to ragas, does that change your perception of the raga? Do you understand the raga better? And somebody who has never heard the raga, like maybe somebody from Korea or somebody from Spain, would they understand the raga or enjoy it? in the same way or in a different way. We want to know how much has your culture 
affected your ability to enjoy music. And that was the subject of this research, which was published this year in, in August um, in PLOS One. And what they did was they took some raggers and they posted them online. And then they asked people from the Indian subcontinent, so people who were cultured into the raga music, who knew about the raga music, they asked them to listen to them and describe the emotions that they felt. And then they also asked people who had never heard ragas and were from different cultures like the United States, the UK, Hungary, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Korea, Romania, Spain and the Netherlands. They asked them to listen to the raga and talk about whether they also felt emotions and what those emotions were. And then they took all that data and they compiled it into this beautiful chart. And it's actually a shame that, that I can't show it to you in this podcast. But basically, if you, if you were to look at this chart, you would notice that it didn't matter if you were from Korea or Spain or from India the emotions created by the raga were the same. Emotions of longing, sadness, anger, calmness, and happiness. And what's really interesting is that it tells us that there's something universal in music. That the sounds of a raga can make you feel happy or sad whether it's part of your culture or not. Music, the sound of music is universal. And it's not the only thing that's universal. In fact, there was some research published again this year in June, which showed that the symbols that were scratched into the cave walls in, in Africa between 540,000 and 30,000 years ago, when, when you show people those, those, those engravings, those symbols, and then you show them the real object, the exact same parts of their brain light up. So we can go from music being universal and creating emotions to symbols being universal and creating connections with the real world. And now we're going to move on to our first specifically linguistic part of, of this journey. And we're going to talk about the Leipzig Jakarta list. Now, language, language is really interesting because in languages in general, the words that we use the most are the words that are the most irregular and the most damaged. So if you look at, for example, the verb to be in English, you'll see that it's the only verb in English that has three forms. And it also happens to be 
<laughs> the most common verb in English. You can think about language a bit like socks. Your, your favorite socks, the socks that you wear all the time, are the most irregular. They have big holes in them. But your special socks, the socks that you only wear to weddings and baptisms, those socks are in perfect condition. And, and language is exactly the same. But another sort of second part of that rule is that those words that are really common, although we don't, although they are irregular and they change, we like to keep them in our little language family. We don't like to borrow words from other language families for those really basic and fundamental things. Whereas if it's uh, words or concepts that are less frequent and less important for our day-to-day -day lives, we're happy to borrow words for those. So it would be very unlikely and unusual to borrow the word to be from another language, but it's quite normal to borrow the word barista from Italian to describe the man who makes your coffee. And the Leipzig Jakarta list is a list of 100 words that are um, the same across all languages studied that have never been borrowed. And so what this list shows us is this list shows us words that are essential to being human. And I'll read a few of them to you. So we have fire, nose, to go, water, mouth, tongue, blood, bone, root, to come, breast, rain, and name. So that's the top 15. And I think it's clear to see that, that those words are universal to the human experience. Fire is number one. I mean, what, what could be more demonstrative? What could be more a part of human history and human evolution than fire? And that is reflected in the vocabulary that we have, in the vocabulary that we don't borrow from other languages. And so we have this universal human experience that's the same as the human universal experience of music and the human universal experience of symbols. Now, why is any of this important? Why am I telling you all this? Because I'm trying to show you that language is universal. You know, we think that we're so different as cultures. We think that we have different ways of viewing the world. We think that there's no way that, you know, someone from Spain can really understand what it's like to be Japanese. But in the final part of this podcast, I'm going to show you that that is just not true at all. And I'm going to do that by talking to you about linguistic semantic primes.
So the idea of semantic primes was um, was really made popular by the Polish um, linguist uh, Wierzbicka. And she basically looked at a big subset of different languages, a big set of different languages, and looked at concepts that were universal across all of them. So we're not talking about specific vocabulary, we're talking about concepts. And uh, she created a map. And let me read you some of these semantic primes. They are I, you, someone, people, body, kind, part, this, the same, other, one, two, some, all, much and many, good and bad, big and small, to think, to know, to want, to don't want, to feel, to see and to hear, to say, words, true, to do, to happen, to move, to be, to live and to die. And the incredible thing is that they showed that with these semantic primes, using just 60 of these concepts, 60, you can express yourself in any way you like. And you can say things that would appear impossible with only 60 concepts. So let me give you an example. Now, imagine if you wanted to explain what it means to lie, to not tell the truth. Well, you could do it like this. Someone said something to someone else. This someone knew that it was not true. This someone said it because he wanted the other someone to think it was true. People think that it's bad if someone does that. Mm. So all of those concepts that I used in that explanation of what it means to lie, you will find all of those in that original list of semantic primes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, okay, describing lying is quite easy, especially if you have the word true. But what about something more detailed? What about something more difficult? Like, how could you describe the difference between happiness and contentedness? It's a subtle difference, but an important difference to be happy and to be content. They're, you know, impossible to describe with just 60 little concepts. But listen to this. Happy. Many good things are happening to me as I want. I can do many things now as I want. This is good. That's how you would describe happiness. Now, what about to be content? Something good is happening to me right now. I want this. I don't want anything else. There you go. Now you're content. <laughs> and I know that maybe some of you, you still feel doubt. 
You're like, okay, happy, content, fine. But what about something really abstract? And I'm going to give you a really abstract example. The Japanese word, amei. Now, this is an example of a word that dictionaries describe in the following way. Amei is a peculiarly Japanese emotion which runs through all of the various activities of Japanese society and represents the true essence of Japanese psychology. Now, something like that, something which is specifically cultural, specifically Japanese, and something so abstract, how can that be described using only 60 basic semantic primes? Well, here's the explanation. This someone can do good things for me. This someone wants to do good things for me. When I am with this someone, nothing bad can happen to me. I want to be with this someone. And that is the Japanese word amei. Now, I'm telling you this because there's a few things I want you to realize. The first one is that language is universal. You might think that the way that you're thinking in Japanese is going to be so difficult for you to express in English, but it's not. It's really simple because as humans, we all share the same emotions and feelings for language, for each other, and for music. I want to read a little explanation from Adele Goldberg's book, Explain Me This. In the book, she says this, The learner's goal is to comprehend messages, given the forms she witnesses, and to produce forms, given the messages she wants to convey. The learner's goal is to comprehend messages and to understand messages. Adele Goldberg is absolutely right. The learner's goal isn't to use the present perfect continuous correctly. It's not to <laughs> memorize the top 1,000 words. It's not to go from A2 to C1. The learner's goal is messages. The learner's goal is communication. And you don't need to know a lot of language to do that. You can do it with just 60 basic concepts. I hope you realize that that is really the focus of language, is communicating those messages. And because we're all the same, the world wants to hear what you have to say because you are a reflection of me and everyone else. And that's what it means to be human. I hope you enjoyed today's Daily Digest podcast. 
My name is Christian, this is Kangaroo English, and I'll see you in class.